Welcome to Building the Base, a unique discussion focused on shaping our future national security industrial base during this pivotal time in our nation's history. For over 40 years, the nonprofit organization Business Executives for National Security, or BENS for short, has brought senior executives and best business practices from across our country together to address our nation's most pressing security challenges. The BENS mission is more important now than ever before. BENS is embarking on a historic project, gathering the best ideas and minds together to define the future industrial base that the United States will need to remain secure and prosperous for our future. And now you have the chance to be a part of it. It's a daunting task, a task the United States has not had to do at this scale since World War II. But it's also a historic opportunity, an opportunity to leverage new technologies, new business models, new ideas, and new voices to improve our country for the decades to come. Hear from top entrepreneurs and leaders from high tech, financial, industrial, and public sectors as they share their ideas and perspectives about how we can all work better together to ensure our national security and prosperity. We are excited to have you here with us. Here to begin today's episode, your hosts, longtime Benz member and leader of the Benz Technology and Innovation Council, Lauren Vadula, and former chief weapons buyer and innovator for special operators, sailors, and Marines, and now Benz distinguished fellow, Hondo Gertz. Hey, welcome everybody back to Building the Base here. Uh, we've got another awesome guest this time as we talk about what should the future of America's industrial base look like? How are we going to get there and hear from experts that are in the trenches thinking about this, acting in the system every day and uh, helping us shape this? Thanks, Hondo. And today we have a really interesting guest who's coming at the issues we focus on really from an investment perspective. James Cross has been at Franklin Templeton for over two decades now and spends a lot of time looking at venture capital um, from many different perspectives, including defense applications, dual use technologies, and some of the issues we've hit on in, in previous conversations. And James is also the founder of a group called the Silicon Valley Defense Group. So we're really excited to talk about um, your vision there, James, and um, the work you've been doing at SVDG as well. So welcome, James. Hey, uh, everybody's got a story of kind of how we got to where we are. And, and uh, you know, part of this is is hearing everybody's story, what got them to this point, some, of some interesting things along the way. And so, uh, you know, before we dive deeply into this uh, very complex topic, what's your story, buddy? What, uh, what got you to sitting here with us today? Awesome. Uh, so I grew up on Army bases, and uh, I'm a redneck from West Texas who accidentally ended up on Wall Street doing defense investing. Um, so a little bit of an odd journey. Had a few, uh, what in hindsight appear to be geopolitical near misses along the way too. I was at the Pentagon the Thursday before 9-11, uh, launching my coverage for my new Wall Street uh, research job in aerospace defense uh, at my day job, Franklin Templeton. And a few other similar things, uh, growing up as an Army brat, which I, I don't necessarily recommend. Wasn't too bad, but it was. Uh, I didn't know what I didn't know until much later in life. Uh, so twenty something years on on Wall Street, uh, mostly doing aerospace defense and industrials. Worked on a couple of portfolios, and just just around the military from a variety of perspectives. Of course, uh, that whole uh, perspective changed on nine eleven and then nine eighteen when the markets opened up. Uh, defense, aerospace defense, had been a backwater on Wall Street for ten years, and then of course uh, it became a high profile sector. 
And I just sort of stumbled into this policy stuff on accident. We'll talk a little bit later about the Silicon Valley Defense Group kind of origin story. It seems like every step of the way, I just kind of found myself in these settings in the middle of something and tried to help out here and there. And one thing led to another. So and then that's how we got in this room, I guess, right now. Mm-hmm. Love it. And it's interesting. We have this theme of family mentors or um, stories that have made folks like you so passionate about the defense space and eager to be a part of it. So excited to talk about that today. But before we do that, I think many of our listeners aren't familiar with how venture capitalism works in really just the purely commercial technology sector. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about your sense of that part of the ecosystem and how it operates and what you look at when you're talking to companies and looking for investments in technologies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I think there's a couple maybe misunderstandings uh, about the venture ecosystem from the policymaker side. Let me just, we think about it, DC versus uh, West Coast, but maybe a real quick 101 Uh, One thing that's misunderstood is most of this money that's being managed by venture capitalists is like pension money from public employees. So this like firefighters and policemen and teachers uh, and that sort of thing. And the VCs are managing a pretty small piece of that pie. It's like 15 or 20 percent of like CalPERS or Texas teachers retirement systems overall pie. And they're trying to generate returns for these folks for retirement. And I think one thing that policymakers scratch their head about is why are VCs so aggressive? Why are they always trying to make so much money in these investments? Why are they always chasing a 10x or 100x? Well, that's their job. And that's what their clients are asking them to do because it's the small piece of the pie that's supposed to be hyper aggressive. I mean, they've got 30 or 40 or 50% of these things in, in municipal bonds that go up 5% a year. So this is this is one slice out of the alternative investment part, and they're supposed to change the very highest returns, take the most risk and get the highest returns. So on average, a VC fund's looking to triple the, the fund over the 10-year life of the fund. They invest for five years and then they harvest for five years. And so to do that, they've got to chase a 10 or 20X in each investment because some of them are going to go to zero. Uh, so hopefully that frames a, a little bit of why the aggressive nature of the investment specialization uh, most VCs specialize by stage. Some specialize by industry or focus. Mo- a lot of them are generalists. So there's early, mid, late. My, my team mostly does mid-stage and, a, and some late stage. Uh, I think a second maybe misunderstanding uh, by policymakers is they, they say, uh, well, we need to find some new technology to meet some new need or some emerging innovation. Go to the VCs out in Silicon Valley and find some new tech. Well, the VCs aren't looking for new tech. They're looking for amazing new businesses that are going to become huge. And the tech is just an input. And maybe some of it's super innovative. Maybe some of it's super disruptive. Maybe it's just a new idea for a better way to do business, like like an Uber. I mean, in reality, is that tech or is it just a better way of organizing transportation? So the idea that VCs equal awesome new tech, uh, yeah, maybe. But really, we're spending our time like awesome founders, big market. I think it was a throughput model. Tech is just the beginning, but it's got to you got to be able to productize it, and then you got to wrap a big, a real business around it with great, you know, great leaders, uh, and then it's got to be driving into a massive market or a total addressable market we call TAM. Locally, it's got some barriers to entry and great unit economics. All of that has to line up to get those 10, 20, 30x returns, and the tech is just one piece of that. If that makes sense, so hiring a bunch of scientists to go reverse engineer IP uh, does not necessarily make, uh, a VC winner make. Uh, our uh, our strategy generally is we're looking for emerging category winners and we are trying to put as much of uh, our clients' uh, assets to work at that magical moment where we've got a new confirmed winner or a highly probable winner. And uh, it's hard to know when that magic moment happens. So you can go a little earlier stage and try to get lucky and you know maybe there's this You've got confidence intervals around your projections and your 10 or 20 or 30% confidence interval. 
smaller checks. Uh, if this company's you know cranking fifty million in revenue, they great great growth at their current clients, good gross margins, uh, awesome growth rates, and they're you know you've got a higher probability of identifying kind of a new category winner. So that's sort of our investment philosophy. We try to identify the top ten or twenty of those in big TAMs and chase them uh, and compete to, to invest. It's interesting how many people think they understand but don't understand. I mean, I even count years truly. You know, even in the last couple of months learning that and it's hard then to respect or put things in context when folks don't take the time to get fundamental understanding. And from understanding, you can get trust and respect. And from that, you can then unlock opportunities. And so, you know, I I I think of you and in the origin story of Silicon Valley Defense Group and and how this all came about. And I think one of the key elements of that was to try and get some more, you know, combined understanding or shared understanding so that then there could be some trust that that went that would then open up opportunities. So take me back to that time in uh in a certain center's uh office and and kind of how you started down this path from very successful financial manager to starting up this uh, really interesting, innovative uh, nonprofit. Sure. Uh, I, I feel like um, we kind of date the beginning of the Silicon Valley Defense Group uh, to a certain day in 2015 where I was sitting in Senator McCain's office on his couch uh, with one staffer, Bill Greenwald, who's a founder. Uh, in reality, I think it, it really started on the Thursday before 9-11. So there was this prelude and there's some other founders involved with us who were along the way working Wall Street and national security at that time. So we were absorbing lessons around private capital and national security, you know, working on things like Juans. I think you know what a joint urgent operational needs statement is, et cetera. Uh, so uh, a good friend of mine introduced me to the senator and I went to visit and I didn't know what I was going to talk about when I got in the office. And it turns out Senator McCain wanted to talk about how DOD needed to work better with Silicon Valley. So I'm sitting on the couch, astounded. Well, well, sir, I, I'm a defense investor and I live in Silicon Valley and I just launched a venture uh, platform. Uh, what, what can I do to help? And so he said, hey, work with my guy, Bill Greenwald here. And one thing just sort of led to another. So Bill called up a couple months later, said, hey, can you put together a roundtable with some startups and VCs? We've got some questions off the Senate Armed Services Committee staff, and we'd like their perspective. So we did it. And I hosted it at my Franklin Templeton's offices. And I thought, well, maybe we should capture what everybody said, put it out anonymously, write a white paper. And I realized, well, we can't put the Franklin name on it. That doesn't make any sense. So I just made up the Silicon Valley Defense Working Group name on the spot. And and it was a pretty bad name. Nobody likes it, myself included, but we hired a consultant to help us rename. And that's how we ended up with the Silicon Valley Defense Group. <laughs> Paid $10,000 to drop the W. Uh, so that, that kind of went on, I don't know, 12, 18 months. I met the whole office staff. We're still involved with most of those people. Uh, Chris Bro, Sammy Hiller, Drew Trojanowski, uh, Pablo. Uh, so that was awesome. Got kind of got passed around. Met some SACD folks. Got into uh, Mac Thornberry's office. Uh, the awesome and honorable Mac Thornberry, who's now an advisor to, to Silicon Valley Defense Group. He was just outside the room there a minute ago. Started working with the Hask. Uh, bounced over to the Pentagon. Got introduced to like DASD for MIBP. Eric Tuning at the time. Uh, ended up working with DIU a lot. General Hayden when he was at Stratcom. Did some stuff with uh, uh, the Chiefs CAG. And it just seemed like there it was always like responding to an inbound request. So for four or five years, the first for four or five years of our lives, it was a volunteer adhocracy. Kind of ran it in the part time. And when, when when I had spare time and just trying to help out and it just kept growing and growing and growing. Finally, when when COVID hit, some friends 
said, hey, it's time to set up the 501c3. They donated a small amount of money. And then we went, did what turned out to be a pretty, I guess, interesting five-week uh, webinar in the middle of COVID. Eric Schmidt, Will Roper, uh, General Votel, uh, Malcolm Turnbull, former Prime Minister of, of Australia. Hondo, you were on there. We had Seth Moulton, a bunch of great folks over five uh, five weeks, some CEOs, some VCs. And just kind of talk through, uh, Hondo, what I think you talk about. What, is, what does right look like in the future when we get to this new defense innovation industrial base? I think it's both, by the way. You know, we're very pro- uh, what people call traditional industrial base. Uh, uh, by the way, we're not. It's not a revolution here. It's an evolution. We think. Um, so that went well. I raised maybe 500k out of that. People were awesome. Totally supportive from all the communities, finance, tech, government, corporate, and we were able to uh, hire you know Sam Chubbs Gray as our executive director with that and start and just get launched. Um, so here we are about a year and a half in and got three folks now on staff, bunch of awesome volunteers, partners, advisors, just seems like we're kind of filling a gap and there's a lot of demand for crowdsourcing policy ideas from, from these, you know, tech and finance experts. So we'll see where it goes, um, from here. Mm -hmm. So you've talked about a number of things, whether it be watching Wall Street pre 9-11 and post 9-11 and looking at the industrial base and the evolution we saw on that front. And even from a security perspective, too, like looking at the past 20 years, we think evolving from CT to China, Russia, today what's going on in, in Ukraine. And even when we talk about this cultural division between Silicon Valley and the defense and national security world, a lot of that really came about because of the Snowden disclosures. But I'd argue um, we're in a much better position now than we were five years ago. And when you talk about SVDG and this interest, I think really signals this need for collaboration, but also appetite to support mission, appreciate defense um, from more of an operational perspective. So, so much of our country's security and prosperity, when we talk about Wall Street and just economic security, are directly linked to the industrial base that grew out of World War II. And as we look to the future and this changing threat landscape, it's really clear that we need to build the industrial base that'll help us maintain both security and prosperity. That's why I think your perspective is so interesting here and not over rely on the one from the past. And so from your perspective and really the financial sector and where you sit, um, how, how should we approach this challenge, especially when it relates to the venture capital community and the types of companies you're interacting with on a daily basis? Because you're really looking over the horizon from the technology perspective and what will work. And, and we're trying to kind of marry up that with the, the threat perspective as well. Uh, yeah, it's a complicated question. It might be even uh, uh, characterized as a wicked problem. Uh, there's only one thing I know certainly uh, with certainty here, and it's that I don't know the answer to the question you just asked. So I've got two things to try to answer it. One is a, a, an idea framework I've been toying with that we haven't really talked about that I'll throw out and love to see what you and listeners think of it. And number two, Silicon Valley Defense Group, what we're doing in this new phase of having resources and staff is trying to shift from just crowdsourcing ideas to going and trying to do it in partnership with our sponsors and a cohort of companies. So this effort's called the Academy. We just wrapped up three days here in DC. Uh, about a three-month program of taking 10 to 15 super well-backed commercial tech companies. They've got minimum viable product and commercial side, good good revenue momentum, and they haven't gone into the DOD market yet. Well, we're walking them right up to the front door of the market to help them decide if they want to go in or not. And at the end 
of this journey, we'll be down in San Diego for three days, engaging directly with real customers. So COCOMs, the fleet, the war fighters, SOCOM guys. And it's going to be really neat to see that happen. I don't know if it'll work. We spent three months helping them think about this, look at partners, um, but I'm hoping to learn more about why it works and why it doesn't work uh, and capture the lessons learned. We're partnering with UCSD's Institute on Global Cooper- Co- Conflict and Cooperation. Good friend and advisor, Tai Chung, is helping out on the academic side. We want to capture this and turn it into white papers and case studies, open source, help lower the barriers to entry. So hopefully somebody in, a, in that journey figures out the answers uh, to your question on how to get emerging tech down, down range. And that's what I'm really excited about with SVDG. First five or six years, we'll keep that going in the policy side and crowdsourcing ideas. Now I want to roll sleeves up and get this community, uh, especially the entrepreneurs, out more towards the front lines, more towards the users, figure out how can we deploy out there and and have the the ultimate customers kind of have their voice in this community, because I think that's the one that's missing. We've got policymakers, senior leaders, political appointees, the Hill, uh, every kind of, you know, Wall Street and VC talking heads. You don't see a lot of uniformed users in the community. So I'd, I'd, hopefully that's something that we can help with. The second idea I, I've come up with, I think is called emerging tech readiness. And there's three parts to it. The first principle here is we don't know what new piece of tech or innovation or disruption either that we will need or we will need to be countering. And I think that was one of the lessons of the post-Cold War period to the Ukraine, uh, which was if you read all the national security strategies and whatnot in the planning documents, uh, there was no description of the need for a capsulated, blast-proof, V-shaped hole truck. And yet out of nowhere, we blew $20 billion uh, because we needed to field these overnight to counter a new threat downrange. And lo and behold, and this is something I really find fun about talking to the defense innovation mafia today. Uh, everything we talk about is dual use and it's VCs. Well, you know what? This used to be called commercially developed military qualified CDM cubed, and it was the Wall Street private money in 03 and 08. And the dream came true for five years. There was money for everybody. The bureaucrats got around all the rules. And if you had something that worked and went downrange, you could get uh, funded immediately regardless of the FAR, and it worked so well, people started going public and having exits. Uh, and you, you try to explain that to people today, and I always, oh, no way, that's never going to happen. We're never going to, you know, when there's a need, the DOD will figure out how to get cap, you know, get, uh, get funds to the right people. Some of the things I learned in there is what made me think about this emerging tech readiness. So if you buy off that we really don't know, well, we think we know it's AI, so we've got the Jake, and the Jake's doing great stuff. But we don't exactly know which situation we'll use and which, you know, which capability out of that. So how about we step back and we just say, okay, we don't know, then we need to be ready when we do know. And so there's three parts. So one is the, and this is where SVDG can help. It's the community of the founders, the venture backers, the, the members of the board, the advisors, the retired brass that come out and get on these boards. If you look back at 03 to 08 timeframe, and there's a great book about this called Marketing the, Marketing the MRAP, uh, a lot of the providers of new tech in 03 and 08, they weren't ready. And they didn't have connectivity to the DOD. The executives in these startups hadn't thought about national security. They hadn't, they didn't have a military background necessarily. So they weren't ready to sell in, right? So let's get that community, like what we're doing with the academy, get them educated up, help them think about how you sell and market and do business. Uh, number two would be give them connectivity to the policymakers ahead of time. So they've got the network of relationships. You know, business is all relationally driven in spite of what the lawyers over in the Pentagon would, would like it to be. And then the third thing is, have the policy pieces and the funding mechanisms already in place and functional so that when we know what the tech is and the innovation or disruption we're grappling with and we've got the people ready to go, we've also got the mechanisms to leverage it faster. And if you study the MRAP program, there's a two-year delay of, from when the first operational vehicles had proved their capability before they got downrange in volume. And this lack of readiness uh, hindered the flow of dollars and deployment um, because some of, the, some of the startup companies who had the IP, they just didn't know how, again, didn't know how to deal with uh, the DOD 
as a customer. So you fix all, fix all that in advance, and then you've got pots of money and program offices that can scale. They don't have to have a lot of uh, capital right now. I mean, maybe 100 million, whatever it is, maybe 500 million. But when we know what that thing is, and we need to go to a billion to 5 billion, and we need to do it rapidly, you've got the staff, the bureaucratic processes, and the funding mechanisms in place ahead of time. So you can move at speed. So that's sort of this idea of emerging tech readiness. I know it needs a lot of thought. That was pretty long-winded, but it, I think it's where we're trying to drive our policy discussions towards. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, in my old SOCOM world, special ops world, right? It's plan for the unplanned. You don't know what it's going to be, but that doesn't mean you can't start getting all the right mindset, all the right uh, talent, all the right procedures in place. And then you just pivot that to whatever the challenge is and customize it for that challenge. And, and that kind of brings us to talent. And and again, we, it was interesting when you were talking about what venture capital looks for. One of the things that I've learned here in this last six months is it's more about, is that the right team to execute this program than is that the right technology to get it done? Technology is almost like an ante. You've got to have the technology, but just having the technology is is not sufficient. And so and I'm sure you're sensing uh, from your position there kind of this war on talent or, you know, scarcity of talent, I guess, maybe different than war on talent. The DOD struggled, I think, uh, you know, in the past of being perceived as bureaucratic. Do you, how do you sense, you know, one, what the talent level is kind of for this future industrial base? How do we work together to both generate it and then deploy it in, in the most effective way possible? Uh, wow. Uh I, I have no idea. <laughs> that uh, is such a huge question. I, I This is a horrible answer, but I think it's first principles. I think it's civics almost. Um, there's not a great understanding. Of, I've got two teenage daughters, so I've got you know, a focus group of two. Well, they grew up with a uh, military geek dad, so maybe not a great focus group. But there's no understanding of uh, the need to secure and defend the democracy culturally, socially, and militarily. That's But that's last by... I think the Zillennials. Um, uh, maybe the Ukraine situation is their version of 9-11, obviously uh, different, but probably impacting their thinking and kind of waking them up to the idea that there's bad folks out there that do bad things. That definitely was 9-11 did that for the previous generations. Uh, so a better understanding of geoeconomics and the techno security competition. Um, after that, it's like, I don't know, make the make make a digital equivalent of special ops and fighter jets. Like every kid grows up wanting to be, a, you know, Green Beret or Navy SEAL team person or, you know, fighter jockey. Uh, is there a digital equivalent? Uh, and I think the last thing is that we need better connectivity from the new tech and big tech, big tech side of the business community, which I think is a new, they're new members of the defense innovation industrial base and the, and what is considered the traditional defense industrial base. Um, huge opportunity for Ben's in the Silicon Valley defense group there, a free plug for our mutual organizations. That, that connectivity, um, those relationships, they don't, they're not organic and they don't exist really at scale the way that the traditional, the primes and SIs and whatnot have. So I think it's a huge opportunity to build that out kind of as, you know, especially post-Ukraine, the thinking in the Valley and among the tech industries, there are sides. Uh, and I think one of the things we're hearing out of the conflict is commercial tech was first in, in a lot of ways from the from the NATO and the American side, because GovTech couldn't go in uh, and it's working. Uh, and I'm hearing more and more stories. I think we look forward to getting that feedback. And, you know, national security leaders had been, have been, you know, having trouble trying to convince our democracy that China is this this scary adversary. We need to do something about it at the societal level. Like people just don't care. They don't get it. Uh, you know, the Ukraine kind of crystallized that maybe 
we need to think about that a little more. So we'll we'll see where that goes. But I the, the war for talent, I I, I really don't know. Um, yeah, but I think you know both your points of my sense that you know there are a group of talented people who are not just purely financially motivated. Uh, you know, you get a little bit in this. You know, every generation, the last generation was the last great generation until the new generation is the next great generation, and so the. I've seen, I think it started even before it, but this idea of service and service can look in lots of different ways. It can, you know, it can be in uniform. It can be uh, in a commercial company doing important things. It can be in, uh, you know, a, a nonprofit or something. This idea of service uh, and connecting things together to get the best outcomes uh, I think is is really, really interesting. Well, I, I mean, one of the things we hope to accomplish in the academy is to enable uh, inside larger organizations, these entrepreneurs who want to say, hey, I think we need to add national securities in line of business and I'm willing to take some career risk or, or pivot into that and I'll make, I'll, I'll, I'll make the investments before there's a return. And so hopefully there's some of that. And, and from getting back to demographics, in the Zillennials' favor is this sense of uh, that that they need a mission. There needs to be a purpose beyond making money. So I think that's the upside opportunity. And let's be honest, the stuff, the national security, the, the tech and the mission stuff the national security community does is just cool. I mean, can you play with hypersonics in the commercial world? <laughs> Maybe at a few VC-backed companies, but not really. Yeah, I mean, part of, you know, part of why we stood up softworks was really to because as a percentage of the of the population in America declines that is either in the military or has a family member in the military you get this chasm of just lack of understanding and then when you don't have again back to this you don't have good understanding then you don't can't appreciate either side and then you get um get some maybe not completely uh, accurate uh senses of what who people are and what they do and one of the things we did was you know softworks brought a lot of people they're like wow i can work on cool things and support my country you know because there was a sense you could either work on cool things or go in the military not that you could actually work on cool things that could actually help the nation's prosperity and national security so it's really interesting to watch i think again having watched the academy folks here there are some great leaders in there trying to take risk and not just chasing the highest dollar potential job because they want to figure out how to take this technology and bring it to bear for uh, for those. It's fun to watch them grapple with that in real time. Like they're asking thoughtful questions. These are hard business challenges. Uh, you've got a good number of like younger kind of mid-career leaders, kind of because almost like executive coaching going on there. And I want to note about, uh, I think about the Silicon Valley geography specifically the 415650 area code 408 it's not anti-military it's just non-military it's not there uh and you've got you've got lawrence livermore lab you've got naval postgraduate school but they kind of stay there i think like you just we just need more more bodies more people engaging in what is a relational transactional ecosystem that'll help a ton so always advocating for more resources for diu more headcount more funding Congress, if you're listening. Uh, and then also just a note on the Silicon Valley Defense Group. We named it that because that was sort of the origin story like I shared with Senator McCain. It, it, we're, we're focused on this the innovation ecosystem globally. And we've got uh, partners on our platform in Boston, San Diego. We're growing into Austin. We're having conversations to launch the Academy in Australia and the UK. I mean, this is meant to support that. that if you go to our website, you see our vision statement to support the, uh, you know, the democracy of ours and our allies. So it's it, it's it's named that, but we don't want to be identified just with like that region of NorCal. It's more about uh, the tech ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So James, you've you've launched the academy because there's this increasing interest in doing business in in the national security 
in, in defense space. And I think many believe that the best way to spur innovation is to really maximize the number of new entrants into the industrial base. And again, I think there are so many companies who are trying to wrap their heads around this problem. And a, a constant between the communities, I think, is that they like hard, solving hard problems and want to contribute to mission. And so none of us would argue against having this robust set of companies supporting DOD, right? Um, but it's not clear the DOD strategy of giving a lot of small awards to lots of small companies has been successful to date. And some believe we're actually diluting opportunities by giving too small amounts of money to too many unproven companies. So I'm curious what you're seeing on this front. Yeah, there's a lot to think about there. Um, I like what the policymaker and the service that did the thousand children of light uh, strategy, I think it was good. And I think what uh, Ensign's doing in the super early stage is good too. It, it helps with that societal thing. I mean, I actually think that maybe that's not talked about a lot, but uh, having that said, uh, there's a there's an imbalance situation here. I think we need more balance. So the DOD's done an awesome job in the early stage, um, but we need to be balanced across mid and late. We need an, an effective throughput model. Uh, so we need to figure out, you know, effective policy and capabilities. I think according to our analysis in the mid stage, I think what DIU is doing in the late stage uh, getting, you know, taking, getting requirements from users and bringing them solutions from the emerging tech community and getting them on production contracts. That's great. It's working pretty well. Uh, we published a paper in 2018 that analyzed a lot of this balance stuff and found the gap is in the mid-level. I mean, what do early stage companies need? They're trying to build their team and to get their minimal viable product done. So they need intros and, and early feedback and, and customer engagement. Uh, and I think the DOD has done a pretty good job with that with the Naval Access and AFWorks and whatnot. Uh, from there, they need to get the five to 10 million revenue pretty quick and get engagement from their customers, proof of concepts out there, beta, contra beta contracts, and kind of be able to break through and get their funding to move towards scaling. Um, people call this the valley of death. I don't think there's been enough analysis. Okay, how do you build a bridge uh, brick by brick across the valley of death? So that's an opportunity there, I think, for everybody at the table. Um, so another one is geographic balance. And now that I just, you know, on the previous question, made sure to defuse the idea that we're just too Silicon Valley centric. Let me get Silicon Valley centric for a minute. Uh, this is stale data. This is 2018. We analyzed the budgets and the and the and the, and the headcount of all the defense innovation units. 91% of the budget and the money was in the national capital region. Uh, with with Army Futures Command getting set up, Texas is going to rise. At that in 18, it was only 5% of total. DC had 91%, and the rest was scattered. Uh, well, guess how much dual use venture funding went into the national capital region? About 2.6% of total. Uh, Austin got 2.7. Um, I just saw some numbers for last last year. 90 billion of deals went down in the Valley. Four and a half billion went down in Boston. Five billion went down in Austin. Um, so it, if we want to gauge the specific venture back tech ecosystem, uh, we're not putting the most boots on the ground and the most funding into the geography where the deals get done and the most startups are, and then working out uh, to the other innovation ecosystem. So it's kind of an odd bias. So again, I, I think the idea of helping DIU partner effectively with the services and be their representative and their trusted broker, uh, let's go capture the most capital that's out there from the private markets. Maybe if if you had more people hanging out and getting beers at the Goose with the VCs uh, in Menlo Park, might help. Uh, okay, I'll take my uh, 650 hat back off. Um, we talked about the stage thing. I think what would really help from a policy adjustment, everybody knows this and says it, but incentivize the requirements, folks, to inject 
emerging tech into the into the planning uh, of the of the requirements and acquisition process early on. Just formalize it, and I don't know, create the benchmarks. Fifteen percent's got to come from non trad non traditionals, and redefine small business. By the way, that's another pet peeve. Uh, small business policy should be should, is very effective, uh, and the funding's all there for the small business programs. But VC backed early stage companies are not small businesses. You can't use the same policy in the same nomenclature for these two categories. No VC invests in a small business. They invest in an early stage company that's going to get the billion dollars or flame out. So you need different policy and different mechanisms. So when I hear somebody, I think this is, you didn't ask the question, but here's one of the reasons I think TCM struggled. You listen to TCM folks talk and they're conflating small business and early stage. As that tells you, I don't know if they've listened enough to the target of the TCM, which is the VCs. They want us to fill out a bunch of paperwork, uh, which is another reason it, I don't think it works. And I'm, we're supposed to get something out of that paperwork. I'm not sure what that is either. Anyway, uh, pet peeve off. And for our listeners, TCM is the Trusted, oh, trusted Capital, Capital Marketplace. Market. And, and and the last thing um, on this, it's bad news. The uh, VC, mark, VC funding has grown considerably in the last five years. It's quadrupled. Uh, it went from about $88 billion in the U.S. in 2017 to about $329 billion last year. Well, the market's frozen right now. Um, the Nasdaq's crashed, interest rates and inflation are on the rise, and uh, valuations have stretched so much over the last two years, all this hot money in the market because interest rates were zero, and COVID made everybody think we're going to digitize everything in the next two years when it was going to take 10 years. Uh, well, it's, it's not crashing back to earth, it's just renormalizing. So uh, we might have had an er- the, the era of the most kind of free VC money for dual use and national security that might be behind us or it might temporarily slow. Um, the SPACs, the same thing, $3 billion uh, in SPAC cash was injected into the space companies through DSPACs. It's awesome. It's on their balance sheets. It's there for the DOD and the IC to, to leverage, but the SPAC market's completely dead right now. So there's, you know, that was a one-time event maybe. So, I mean, these are the th- kind of things I think the DOD needs a, a permanent institutionalized office and function that has connectivity to the capital markets, understands them and and is prepared to help the acquisition community leverage them when appropriate. And we it worked awesome in 03 and 08. There was a lot of lessons we could have learned and institutionalized. We didn't institutionalize, unfortunately. So one of the uh, one of the things I've observed is is kind of, you know, continuing to smaller and smaller number of bigger and bigger companies, lots of lots of small ones, but whether you call it valley of death, not making it through their stages or whatnot, having a challenge scaling up in and and growing i know you know from your early comments venture capital is looking for those companies because of their model or technology or people they're all about scaling and so if if a goal is to rebuild the middle of the industrial base uh which i think personally is very important um do you think there's a way to better align the vc um and dod kind of incentives uh, you you mentioned a couple of things, but is is that a is that a dream too far, or you think we just need to uh, you know spend some more time thinking through the lessons we had from 03 to 08 and coming up with some concrete and a lot of talk, maybe not a lot of action. Take some concrete action to get after it. Yeah, it, it's 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 hard to say. The thing in the 2000s was there was just so much ca- there was so much money flowing. Uh, that it wasn't hard for the DOD to be a good customer. So that's the advice. Be a good customer. Well, when you've got infinity budgets, it's pretty easy. Uh, When budgets are limited or there's tension between different priorities, the DOD can still be a pretty good customer, um, but it's just different. So maybe looking at the early stage, press forward and give feedback on the tech and give input and cycles as they try to find minimum buy-bell product. Maybe pay for some of the engineering 
knowing that as they get to the mid-stage, you're not going to be that great of a customer because it's going to take you three to five years to get on contract. Congress wants to help with that now with some of that bridge funding. But I do think uh, the market is big enough that once companies get through to the late stage uh, and they've had enough time to navigate to production contracts, there's enough revenue there to justify it. I mean, the government's 20% of the global economy. So on average, and every diversified company will have 20% of their revenue coming from government and defense is the biggest piece of that. So it is big enough today. It's just a little slow. So DOD needs to try a little harder to be a good customer. When when the you want when the you know what hits the fan, like right now, I mean the DOD is being a great customer to Aerovironment for switchblades. Uh, so because they're working really well and they need as many as they can get. So those times will come and go. Um, so that that kind of just it's dependent upon you know what the what the current situation is. So we've talked a lot about the academy and interest in entering defense markets. Do you have any advice you'd give to listeners who might be trying to wrap their heads around how to do this? Uh, I think take a pause before you decide to go in um, and study the market and develop a strategy before you hire your federal go-to-market team, or maybe your first one conduct that. And that's, again, the Academy's trying to help with that. I know we're not the be-all end-all, but uh, that's that's what we're here for on that project. Don't hire your consultants and lobbyists and go recruit a bunch of four stars right off the bat. Develop that strategy and define some extremely narrow goals. Because um, outside of like the Juons environment, uh, or if your air environment with Swishblaze today, it's going to take a while. It's probably going to take three years. And count the cost. Like be transparent to your executive team and your board and develop a realistic time horizon. If after you've done that, it still makes sense and you have a business case, then I think you can start to proceed. So I think companies rush in too much because they they're, maybe they're patriotically minded or maybe they're run by military founders or maybe they've got dual use VCs, whatever. I think it takes a lot more thought and strategic focus. And by the way, do not deviate from your commercial product path by one one inch. And if you do, make the, make the government customer pay for it. So I think the most common mistakes are hiring too many uh, and the wrong, too many people and the wrong outside help DC people too early. Uh, I think another mistake is recruiting a shiny board, putting your time into that, uh, whether it's your advisory board or independent board of directors. And you end up with with like, they look great on your website. But a lot of times these retired senior flag officers don't know much about how a early stage high growth company works, for example, uh, or they're on 10 boards already and they're not going to roll their sleeves up and help enough. And they just need to take time uh, figuring out the right folks to put in those positions. Uh, so do it slow and get it right. And then once you've done all that, do hire outside help. That's the last piece. This market is different. You don't just hire a bunch of salespeople, give them their geography and a quota and an Amex and turn them loose. You do need to hire consultants. You do need to hire ex-mill folks, people who have connectivity to the program executive offices. You do need to hire lobbyists. You do need to understand how Congress works. It's a different market. Embrace their reality and get the help you need. Over time, you can insource it. I wouldn't recommend that in the early stage. You know, I, I wasn't thinking of it when I asked the question, but I think that's actually really helpful advice for policymakers, you know, and folks on the U.S. government side to hear too, so that they understand the investment these companies are making to try to go to market here too. And just more transparency on both sides or awareness is is so helpful. And when we talk about advice, um, so much of our individual success, it, it really, in your case, you've had this incredible career. And I don't know if you've had mentors along the way, but I'm curious if you can talk about maybe examples of those that have influenced your career path and um, how you think about mentoring others, whether it's through the academy um, or more broadly speaking, because it helps as, as we think about talent and workforce issues, but also just this awareness and appreciation of mission and prosperity and the like. So any, any good mentor stories? 
Oh, uh, yeah, and I got permission to give this first answer, so I won't get in trouble. But I, I want to start with my family, my wife and, and daughters. Uh, first, them just supporting, kind of putting time into this sort of thing. And actually, my older daughter, Natalie, was our first intern. She built our website when we did those five webinars and raised the money. So uh, uh, appreciate that. And my wife now is helping me host salon dinners and, and recruit like staff. Um, so I really appreciate Kelly's support there. Uh, on the on the executive side, a name you guys might not have heard of, a guy named Harry Sloan. He's the one who introduced me to Senator McCain. He's a you know half Hollywood, half Wall Street guy. He's probably made some cool movies you uh, you've watched, and he taught me how to think like a deal guy. So see the big picture, identify where the massive opportunity is, identify the three variables that matter the most, have a strong opinion about them, and then go delegate everything else. I love that. Um, in D.C., uh, a couple of retired Marine three stars, General Emo Gardner and General uh, Robert uh, General Rooster Schmidl. Uh, Ironically, an F-18 pilot, just like Chubbs. Uh, understanding how the like the Office of Secretary of Defense works, the bureaucracy, CAPE, the, how the budget gets made, the D.C., the Hill stuff. Awesome uh, tutors, I would call them. Uh, my partners, Bobby and Ryan at Franklin Venture Partners, kicking my ass every day to be the best VC team we can be, uh, which sometimes is fun and sometimes is painful. Uh, my co-founders on SVDG, Chris O'Donnell, we call him OD, Chris Donaghy, uh, Bill Greenwald, and, and Chubbs, our exec director, just like trying to make SVDG better. Uh, and grow it, you know, way beyond my capabilities. You asked about mentoring. I don't know. Those guys are going to do it all. The board, the partners, y'all. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I know my limitations and I think we've met them uh, clearly. So, and lastly, I just think the the folks that are passionate about these issues, it's a fun community. Like the, peop- the people in the Defense Innovation Mafia and we all go to Defense Innovation Theaters together and, you know, watch the show and it's kind of fun. Uh, so, uh yeah, like it, it took a lot of folks and uh, I don't I, I think we got a long way to go and, and it's going to be a lot of people that, that need to get us there. Yeah, James, one of the things I enjoy most about you is uh, and I talk a lot about is the power of curiosity uh, and curiosity when, you know, connected to humility and boldness can be a, a really powerful combination. We first got connected when I was in the Navy struggling with trying to, you know, really break some of the code here and figure out what the, what the barriers were. And you were very gracious. Uh, you were curious and, you know, we had no contract, we had no working you know, relationship. It was more just some shared interest. And I, and I find a lot of folks sometimes don't appreciate the value of getting out of your own you know, whatever your cylinder of excellence is, your own community, learning from others and learning with with, with humility and, and opening up new opportunities. And so while at some point, sometimes you need that laser focus on your business activity and whatnot, other times you need almost to completely invert that and have kind of no focus and mix it up with uh, folks who are completely outside your circle. What's your, you know, I find you very unique because you've You've been laser focused and super successful in the financial industry, yet on the flip side, went completely unfocused and and you know engaged across this broad ecosystem. What's your what's your take on that? Do you do you see it the same way? And and any advice you'd give for those out there who are you know trying to make their way in uh, whether it's up the chain in their company or or in their government organization or 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 whatnot? What's your what's your sense of that? Uh, Hondo, I love this last question and I love the one before it. Uh, this was awesome. Really made me think, um, you know, and, and when we were working with you and Chubbs on that little council, I mean, it was the middle of COVID. We didn't know that it would turn out okay. We were in a panic. One of the main projects was we were afraid 
these all these great VC backed dual use companies would go out of business because there'd be no VC funding in the middle of COVID. It's like we were worried about like Sail Drone and Ocean Arrow and these kind of guys. Uh, it turned out okay, and I haven't reflected on it since then until you till we you asked this question. Um, I think meeting with you helped me see the problem and the opportunity from a hyper busy executive's view who had to deliver value on short-term time horizons with a bunch of bosses. Getting on these calls and you barged in and you're Honda away and it's like, I got to do this, this, and I got this problem and this problem. What do you guys think? Well, we didn't have time to pontificate. There was no time for theory. That was all useless. You needed pragmatic, practical solutions and you were asking private capital guys for ideas. So that, I mean, that was just fantastic. I think that was one of the more transformational uh, experiences the SVDG kind of staff and team has had collectively because it, I think it really kicked us into gear to move towards orienting action first, you know, and then, you know, we've got the academy now, I've got some other things in the pipeline, but I, I, there's a real conviction out of that experience. If you're not doing, don't talk. Uh, and then the second thing was, you know, the, the, your broader question, kind of an, ex- again, a ge- executive coaching thing. I think defense innovation champs like ourselves definitely need to get out of our comfort zones. And there's two people, there's two types of people we, uh, we need to engage with. And I, I, would, I would tell uh, the folks that love our salon dinners, well, go get, in, go get on a little thing like Hondo have with some busy executive who needs pragmatic answers and you're going to learn a lot. So get out into the action side. There's, there's plenty of good ideas. We don't need any more good ideas in the defense innovation world. Uh, myself included. And then the second one is go find those people that you think should care about this, the future of the industrial base or whatever you want to call it. And they don't care and go confront that, like go meet them. Why, why don't you care more? Uh, for policymakers, I would say, go meet some of those VCs who do not give a damn and would probably tell their port codes, do not sell to the DOD. You're not ready. Wait five years. Go ask them why. Look in their eyes. Like, why, aren't you, why don't you care about this really important problem? Because I think it'll, it'll help clarify the thinking on our side of the table. And it's not pleasant, um, but I think it's going to lead to more effective outcomes and more urgency, more focus. And that's, you know, we were talking earlier, like whatever the future is, we need to fi- give our best guess of what that is. And let's start moving towards it. Awesome. Well, James, it's uh, been a fascinating dialogue here uh, I, I know it's a special treat to get you on mic. You're not a guy that's on mic a lot. And uh, and I uh, appreciate your really super interesting ideas. I go back to this, you know, the most effective folks I've found really driving change have that unique combination of curiosity. They want to explore. They want to go learn new things. But they have humility to actually learn. Like some people ask questions and they think they already know the answer. Uh, others actually really listen and think about it and chew on it and then uh but then but then at the end take bold action they don't wait for perfect but anytime we can kindle that spirit which i think is kind of the american spirit to begin with and get it oriented towards useful outcomes you know i i don't think that's a fair fight for our enemies i i think that's exactly what's going to allow us to continue to be uh secure and prosperous but it's not a given it, it takes action. It's not a given. And I think Ukraine's helping maybe some who haven't understood that it takes action uh, to see that in a, in a very frank and in-your-face kind of way. So thanks, buddy. Appreciate awesome. you being here. Thanks, Hondo. Thanks, Lauren. Thanks, James. Enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Building the Base, a podcast from the Business Executives for National Security. Join hundreds of senior leaders and executives dedicated to the mission of keeping our nation safe. Check out our projects we're currently working with, important upcoming events, and the many ways you can get involved at www.bens.org.